0: Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk about Rolex's acquisition of Bucherer, Audemars Piguet's newest AP house, and Rob's new book Slay It with a Diamond.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from the Big Apple here in your hometown, Rob.
2: Yes. <laughs> and this is Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, also calling in from the hot, sweltering uh, Big Apple. I mean... It's weird. It's September, right? shouldn't... It shouldn't be like this.
1: September is normally a glorious month in New York City. And I would say this is not glorious. It's sunny, yes. but it's it's like a three-shower day, you know?
2: Yeah, it's brutal.
1: I'm dreading going out again. And I have to because, of course, when people listen to this, this will already be passed. But today's Jewelry Night Out, which is a big deal yes. for Women's Jewelry Association members across the country. I didn't come to New York City for this, but I'm super happy I happened to coincide with it. I, I came in for an event that took place last night, a Breitling event, where they introduced some new pieces in their Navratimer collection for women, and they had a big event at the classic car club on the west side and charlize theron was there misty copeland there was an incredible dance performance by some of the members of the ballet and yeah big big to do on the west side so i'm sticking around for jewelry night out and then i I head back tomorrow
2: very nice i was i was just in california what yes you know i was in uh yeah i was in i was no no cal though
1: no where? I always thought you would just, I just assumed you were spending your trip in
2: New Jersey. We were like in Mountain View and Monterey, San Jose.
1: What were you doing? Is it your, do you have, is it your sister there?
2: No, no, no. There was a wedding near San Francisco, you know, one of those cities near San Francisco. So that's where we were there. Wow. Yeah, it was nice.
1: Amazing. You know, I had just been in Monterey a couple weeks ago for car week.
2: Yes. Remember, you know, so it was weird. I was listening to the podcast and you were like, oh, I'm in Monterey. And usually, like, you know, California towns don't necessarily penetrate my brain. I was like, oh, yeah, we're actually going to be there.
1: Did you take Nike to the aquarium?
2: In where? In, uh,
1: Monterey's got a really like a world-class aquarium.
2: There was an aquarium we were going to go to and it was... Rather pricey, so we did not.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is rather pricey. oh uh, Well, that's exciting. I had no idea you were in California.
2: You didn't know, right? Oh, well, there you go. I guess uh you know, since I don't really, I'm not always involved in the planning. I sometimes forget where I like forget where I'm going. Just go where okay.
1: you're told. You show up at the time.
2: Go so where I'm told. <laughs>
1: okay, good boy, good boy.
2: Very nice. It was California. It was very nice.
1: Great. Well, I'm and it was weather.
2: It was actually nice uh, weather. It's nice
1: weather. It's dry. In any case, it is nice to be here. It's uh, it's always a pleasure. It feels like. Even though Labor Day has passed and everybody seems to be in a go, go, go fall mindset, it's hard to square with the kind of hot summertime weather we're having. But in any case, it does feel like I can, you know, Fashion Week's about to start and there's just so much going on. There's a lot yeah. of locations, a lot of events, a lot of preening influencers standing in front of flower bouquets here. I'm staying downtown and, and the hotel is rife with all kinds of events going on. And, you know, I've lived here for well over a decade, and I've forgotten how much intensity and how many things are going on around this time of year as fall is about to kick in.
2: Yeah, no, and it definitely it's been a heavy news week because this was like a slow news summer, Right, but uh, things are definitely picking up. There's, there's a lot more going on, which is good.
1: Well, right before you took off for holiday, so this was like the week before Labor Day, we got some big news from the watch world. and Really big news, I would say, took a lot of people by surprise.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, Rolex has purchased uh, Bucherer which is a uh, it's they make watches I believe also but I think it's mostly known as a retailer and it's known in the United States as the company that bought Chernow in
1: 2018
2: yeah 2018 Mm -hmm. what was interesting to me about it was a lot of people very alarmed obviously because Rolex is now buying a bunch of retail stores and We could talk about that in a bit. But what was interesting to me is that, I guess, the head of it, George Mm Bucherer. So, I mean, I didn't really know that much about this company other than kind of the basics. But apparently, the the head of it is 87. So, he must have bought these Tornos stores when he was like 82 or 81. I mean, it seems like, you know, know, I thought it was like this kind of like young, uh, you know, this company that's like kind of had a young generation. And instead, it has this 87-year-old man who I guess has no you know, his family does not want to take over the business. So he was looking for a exit strategy. So one of the things Rolex stressed in its statement was that they felt that this was the best thing for the Booker brand that they take it over. And because the options are, are, are limited, you know, it could be sold to private equity. I was reading one analysis that suggested that private equity or someone like LVMH may not, be that interested in taking over Bucher just because so much of its business is based on Rolex mm-hmm. you know it's a that's a that's a big risk so you know they kind of said it was best for the brand best for the stability of the industry which is you know and I'm interested in your take on this because you know Rolex seems like the kind of company that really plans ahead I think they're kind of known for that and we don't know how long they were talking about this but it does seem that they're kind of acting like okay he needed an exit strategy so we're just gonna pick it up and kind of let it run independently. And that doesn't seem like the way they commonly operate, that they just kind of jump on something that just kind of came their way. It seems like they're more of a, a planning organization. Is that your sense also?
1: Very much so. Yeah, they're not really like off the cuff. The thing about Rolex that is continually fascinating and continually maddening is just how opaque they are as an organization. Now, I mentioned that, and we just briefly talked about me having spent car week you know, in Monterey with Rolex, an incredible event. Rolex is present across. Car Week, which is filled with these very posh, very high end events catering to some of the biggest watch lovers in the world who often happen to be car lovers and are collectors of cars as much as they're collectors of watches. And Rolex has an incredible, deep presence across the series of events. And I was with my PR contact, who I know and like very much. And my sense is that she didn't know this was coming, this news, because it broke just as we were getting back from Monterey. And so I think that even when it comes to Internal teams. This kind of high-end, high, you know, decision making comes from the very top. It's a need-to-know basis. So my sense is that this was not an off-the-cuff decision. But they do have a new chairman in place, and they, again, most of this is hidden from public view. These are not people that give public interviews. I did happen to meet him because I a year ago I went to attend the British Open at St. Andrews with Rolex, which has been a sponsor of many tournaments in golf, the Open being one of them. And we had an incredible party at this Scottish castle. And I was introduced to, as it turns out, the chairman, the new chairman of Rolex, who comes from a retail family in Geneva, long established retail. And he he was pretty chatty in a way that kind of surprised me. And I got the sense that the PR that was with us there in Scotland was a little nervous because he was kind of talking away. And, you know, I didn't want to betray any of my trust or relationships with Rolex, so he never published or even really explored what he was talking about, but he was just talking about adding a production facility, which has since come online and expanding that. I guess, let me cut to the chase in terms of what I think is happening with Booker. I don't have any special insight. I do know that Rolex makes something on the order of a million timepieces a year, so they're not going to all be sold through Booker. That's just not possible. So I did hear Watches of Switzerland took a little hit in terms of its stock after that news, and maybe there is some consternation among retail partners and especially the bigger chains like Watches of Switzerland, which is a huge business in Rolex, but... It does seem like there's should be enough Rolexes to go around. Rolex has has always really honored its partnerships in the retail world. It's it's never gone direct like so many other brands have. And in fact, one of the other things we'll be talking about is new ways that watch brands are going direct and cutting out their retail partners. But Rolex has never done that, and I don't see why it would start now.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, but what's interesting about this? I mean, first of all, even though it, it will own a retailer, I mean that's undeniable right so it is in a sense going direct one of the things they keep saying is that this is going to be independent it's going to be independently run there's not going to be any changes but as you and i uh, we've all been through corporate takeovers and we've all witnessed corporate takeovers they usually say they're not going to change anything and once they own it sometimes they just let it kind of languish and die in the vine but most of the time they they do make changes i mean you own it you paid money for it you want to do something for it and i guess the nervousness is that we all know that rolex is highly sought after there's long been a bit of a shortage and the question is you know if it does get to a bad shortage will it favor booker and i don't think there's really an answer to that at this point certainly not anything that they've talked about, you know, they're trying to reassure their retailers and watches of Switzerland even put out a statement saying that Booker is going to be independently run. Again, uh, my experience is I remember when LVMH bought Tiffany, they said they weren't going to make any changes and now they're remodeling every store. So, I mean, that's kind of the thing that companies always say. So we'll just have to see. And they may not know at this point.
1: Yeah, well, you know, Booker, I'm just looking now, it says 100 stores worldwide. They do a lot of jewelry as well. So they're a big jewelry retailer. In fact, they do their own jewelry. The thing is, they're not, I don't think they have a big position in Asia. Those 100 stores are both America and Europe. You know, there's a big chunk of the world, obviously, that still demands Rolex. So I don't think those retailers in points east and, and south necessarily need to worry what what does that mean for American retailers? I don't think much at the moment. You know, I think we're just going to have to wait and see what the market says. I think it is a really interesting move, but not one that I think will have great repercussions at the moment.
2: Yeah, I think it's something that will develop. And Rolex, for all its strengths, does not have any retail background, any retail expertise.
1: Right, exactly.
2: I believe they have one store that's located in their headquarters, and that's it and they have co-owned boutiques, but generally they outsource that. So certainly at least initially uh, I can see it being hands-off. Who knows what the future holds and it's possible Booker may even be spun off at some point. I think they just want to make sure that the relationship remains solid. I, I think a lot of people expected the chairman to do something like a foundation, which is what Rolex has. Mm-hmm. His business is kind of left to this foundation that perpetuates the name and the business. But instead, he joined Rolex, which already has a foundation. We've always talked about how good a brand Rolex is and how smart they are and how what long-term thinkers they are. And what's interesting is in the last year, they've made two pretty major shocking announcements that have been big changes to its business model.
1: You're very really right. Last December, the announcement that they were going into certified pre-owned with Booker as their model retail emporium for these pre-owned pieces. And yes, and now this acquisition.
2: Mm-hmm. And I mean, do you think that the the company culture has changed at all or?
1: Um, that's a really good question. It's so hard to have insight into the company culture. I do think it is changing a little. I mean, I think you can't deny. And they again have this new chairman. So maybe that is a top down decision. I mean, DeFore, their CEO has been with the brands uh, since 2014. Yeah, a lot of changes. I. I can see why this makes people with a large investment in Rolex nervous because it is a company that has historically functioned, you know, been a a model of evolution, not revolution. That's the cliche about Rolex. And we are, in fact, seeing some revolutionary moves now. And I can see why that makes people a little nervous when they think, because so much of what Rolex does and so much of why it is beloved is because it is so predictable. There's no flashy changes. There's no trendy going for this or that. There's no sort of experiments or tests. You know, it's not a brand that really prides itself on test marketing, funky concepts. It really studies things. It puts them out into the marketplace when, you know, they're reasonably assured they will be successful. Uh, It is a brand that operates on the highest level in everything they do. It's pretty stunning just to be a Of theirs because you see just from the decor, just from the flowers that they put around at the events they're at, how incredibly uh, attuned they are to details and to subtle but powerful signs that rolex is you know like just their branding is everywhere their logo their clocks they are a ubiquitous presence at all these major events from the u.s open to wimbledon to car week to the goodwood revival another classic car fest in england they're just such a case study in branding excellence that i can see why people are like oh goodness these things are unexpected and we don't look to rolex for the unexpected we look to Rolex for the expected, but I do think it's healthy. I mean, we're living in unprecedented times. And I think if a company like Rolex isn't willing to do things that maybe it hasn't done before, then I don't know how long they can be expected to last. Although Relics does seem to be pretty impenetrable in the sense that it has the lock on the marketplace in watches is number one brand by far by market share. So I think something on the order of 23 or 24% market share.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds mission is to grow and strengthen consumer confidence by providing integrity across the natural diamond industry, offering unrivaled diamond grading and testing exclusively for natural untreated diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds provides diamond chairs with confidence in a report of each diamond's four C's. Every diamond graded at De Beers Institute of Diamonds is also given a unique inscription number, allowing the diamond's details to be tracked and viewed on their website. Visit institute.debeers.com to learn more and register for their grading services.
2: So you you were talking about luxury retail, yeah? And you actually visited... The newest Audemars Piguet store, correct? No, so,
1: store is a little of a mis- bit of a misnomer. Uh, back at the very end of August, the week after the Monterey Car Week, I was invited with a plus one, so I brought my partner, Jim, to the Audemars Piguet house, the AP house in L.A. This is now, I believe, the 15th residence that AP has around the world. They've got a couple in Hong Kong. Their first one opened in fall of 2017 in Milan. They're now in Asia. I think they have one in St. Barts. London, Munich, Kuala Lumpur. I mean, they've got some crazy locations and they have one in the meatpacking district here in New York and the newest AP house is in LA. It's, I don't have the official press release so I don't have the exact details but I think it's something on the order of 6,000 square feet on a 10th, this is the key. It is not on the street level. It is not a store where you walk in and you look at showcases and you have a transaction in the back. Maybe you have some champagne with somebody. This is an apartment at least a space that has been recreated to look like an apartment. It has a commanding view of downtown LA. It has gorgeous furniture and decor, books and you know a bar, and again, this terrace. The party they had to celebrate it doubled somewhat as a goodbye party for the outgoing CEO, Francois-Henri Benamy, who has been with the brand almost 30 years, has been chief executive for, gosh, about a decade or so, And he announced a year ago that he would be leaving at the end of 2023. So he's been instrumental in raising the brand's profile, especially in Hollywood. And so true to form, I walk into this party and, oh my God, Arnold Schwarzenegger is here. Then we walk a few more steps and we see John Legend, John Mayer, Don Cheadle. It's like, it was Celebrity Central. And I even chatted with John Mayer, who's a massive watch collector and a really knowledgeable Engaged guy who you know does a lot of collaborations with Hodinky. He's done some G-Shocks, but he's a big Rolex guy. He's a big Audemars guy, which I didn't realize, and. So what's fascinating about these AP houses is, you know, five or six years ago, Francois was, you know, he was already at the CEO spot and he sort of looked out and he saw that retail was changing and the the desire of luxury customers to sort of have a more of a lifestyle relationship with their key brands was just something he noticed. I don't want to say he took this idea from one of AP's key partners, but if you know the retailer Material Good, funny enough, I just was there this morning. I had a a meeting at Material Good. It's a retailer in Soho in downtown New York. They opened in 2015. They were founded by two guys. One came from the diamond business. Another was a longtime Audemars Piguet sales guy, I think. And they really saw in 2015 that they wanted their, their clients wanted places to hang out, to feel like they were not so much focused on transactions, transactions would come, but places where they could feel comfortable, they could order a drink, they could relax in a beautiful sofa, they could come for a dinner party. And so Material Good opened in this second floor space on Wooster Street. It's open to the public, you don't have to have an appointment, but there's no signage. And you just kind of have to know it's there, and you come up, and they've got some cases, but a lot of it is more of like a museum style display where you've got showcases in built into the walls. And
2: this is the material good or Automar Pierre.
1: Well, material good is this way, but now Automar, when they open their first space a couple of years later in Milan, I can't say they took that concept for material good but it's a similar concept and that concept is these residential style spaces where the focus is on hospitality the focus is on lifestyle it's not on buying and selling even though presumably that comes I mean I don't know if they'd be opening up more of these spaces if they weren't working and the, the more interesting th- thing is in the Swiss watch world a lot of brands are starting to follow suit so quorum just opened up one of these they call it a concept store but it's again it's a place that's not street level it's located in the upper floors of a building. This one is in Bangkok. They opened in May in partnership with a local retailer. H. Moser, which is a very highly sought after independent brand, is opening up what they're calling Moserland, another of these retail spaces here in New York in, I believe, in October, near Times Square in an office building. Again, security is not really an issue, so you don't have to worry about the same concerns you have when you're a street side retailer. You welcome people. There's a couch. There's a terrace. You can smoke your cigars. You hang out. A number of other brands are really announcing this shift, and I do wonder if we're going to start seeing more of that and whether or not retailers that are not these high-end brands, but the kinds of retailers that read JCK, if there's going to be any similar effort to create these club-like spaces in their hometowns. Because it is quite fun, actually. It's quite fun to be somewhere that feels like a Soho house, but you don't have to be a member, you know?
2: But it it sounds like fun. I'm sure it's a nice place to hang out. And I was actually, I was reading today an article in The Atlantic, which brought up the point that brick and mortar retail in particular is one of the Kind of bright spots right now with commercial real estate because commercial real estate is still recovering from the pandemic and everybody working from home. But brick and mortar retail is actually not doing so badly as it printed an interesting statistic, which I didn't, I hadn't seen anywhere else that about a thousand more brick and mortar retail stores have opened nationwide this year, then have closed. And that's even counting the loss of, of several big retailers like uh, Bed Bath & Beyond and a lot of stores cutting back. So you have a lot of these dot-coms opening retail stores. And it mentioned that a lot of the stores that are opening are high-end, that demand in high-end malls and for high-end brands is particularly strong. And it theorize that one of the reasons that is, is because they have such big margins and they cater to such a wealthy clientele that they really can afford to make it a great retail experience and have great service and have all the things that we were just talking about couches and drinks and and things like that
1: it's that bifurcation we've been seeing for decades you know this top end of the market only gets stronger the low end of the market seemingly only gets weaker and and all these really high-end brands seem to keep us in you know afloat because we we write about them and we have things to say yeah yeah it's it's it is really interesting it's really interesting also just underscores how important that face-to-face experience continues to be, even after, given all we've learned about digital luxury and digital retail and omni-channeling retail, you know, what came out of the pandemic was an overwhelming desire to have in-person physical experiences. I don't think I would have predicted that three years ago.
2: I thought there would be something of a bounce back but, you know, as it dragged on and people started to develop different habits, you started to wonder, maybe this is going to be a permanent shift. And it doesn't look like it, it has been. I mean, you know, some people do more online shopping perhaps than they did, but it's not really accelerated at the rate people thought it was. And I think there was a story I think we ran last year where the head of Shopify said we overestimated how much online would grow during the pandemic. And it, it did grow. Clearly, it grew. But perhaps not at the rate that, that people thought, you know, people mm-hmm. now that things are relatively back to normal, people just go back to their old habits, mostly, uh, not entirely, but. Mm-hmm.
1: I guess that's comforting. You know, yeah. very comforting,
2: good. Yeah, you don't want an entire industry to be decimated by a pandemic. Yeah. So it's good. Yeah.
1: Well, we don't have that much time left and we cannot fail to discuss maybe the most important bit of news we've seen oh, across my God. our this desks. Is huge in months and months if not years or since the last time you have <laughs> your third book coming out congratulations
2: thank you very much tell
1: us what's the remind me of the title of this one
2: uh this one is called slay it with a diamond and Slay it
1: with a diamond
2: yes and it's about a cursed diamond which was actually a little harder for me to write than some of the others because it's not it's it's about the kind of high end of the industry and some of the wealthy heritage brands and i'm not as familiar with those brands as i am some of the other aspects of the industry so i had to do a bit of research for that but it's my favorite so far. Wow. But, you know, I think people can read it without reading the first two. And uh, I hope uh, people enjoy it. You know, I have to figure out how to publicize it.
1: So it's out on Amazon, available on, what, September 12th?
2: September 12th, yeah. Check it out and enjoy it. And uh, the ebook is just six bucks. I mean,
1: practically free.
2: The price of a, of a cup of coffee. Pretty
1: much. And it's a cozy mystery in the vein of the other two.
2: Ooh. mystery and it's set in the diamond business and it was intended to be the last one of the series, but uh, I will write one mm. more okay. and then that's probably going to be it. I'm psyched about it. Hopefully people enjoy it. I hope people read it and uh, let me know what they think. It's lighthearted. It's fun. It's a huge fan of the first two. Episodes. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. And uh, I'm happy to autograph for a very, very low fee. <laughs> Well,
1: next time I see you, which I I guess I don't know when that be, I'm hoping to come back for New York City Jewelry Week, which is in mid-November this year, I think kicking off around the 12th or 13th of November. And yeah, so hopefully I'll bring my copy and you can sign it then.
2: Yes. And uh, it's, a, can I give my, everybody else pitches stuff on our podcast so Take I can, away. I can do it. Right? So we'll uh, go to robbatesauthor.com. There's a picture of my bald head up there and you can see the books and the Amazon links and check it out. And uh, I have to say, I think I worked harder on this than all the others. And it was, it was tough just, and the one I'm writing now is tough also, but uh, I'm very curious to what people think. It's very, I it has kind of a gothic literature inspiration like I read like a lot of and I hadn't read a lot of these books like Rebecca and Turn of the Screw and uh, Jane Eyre like so I read a lot of those kind of gothic books to kind of get that kind of feeling about an old house and which is where a lot of it takes place so I hope people enjoy it man
1: I'm super impressed and really happy for you and I can't wait to read
2: it yeah well I appreciate that thank you I can't wait for you to read it unless you don't like it and then- <laughs> I'm, I'm and yeah and I, I should i should tell people that the most important thing is buying it you don't actually have to read it so <laughs> exactly. really all that matters if you if you buy it you know that's that's yep. it right thanks, man. we're good okay all right well perhaps i'll see you later hopefully yeah all right okay so take care everybody uh talk to you next time
0: bye thanks for listening to the jewelry district i'm natalie comet the producer of the podcast If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.